Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. The phone number 877-973-7425 should you wish to be on the program. Well, the pushback is happening. A judge in Louisiana, a Louisiana state judge, has now stopped the state's uh, pro-life law that would prohibit abortion from going into effect. This is a state judge saying that at Louisiana Constitution, um, allows abortion on demand, um, despite the Louisiana Constitution not doing that. Uh, this will get, have to work its way up to the Louisiana Supreme Court, where they will probably, more likely than not, uh, get rid of the judge's decision. Um, but uh, there will be judicial activists. The thing that uh, people have to remember is you will find a lot of progressive activists in state courts who will say that, well, under our state constitution, uh, we imply an abortion right, even if it's uh, not there and no history of it. So just watch. You'll see progressive activist judges. Now, I want to take Andrew's phone call before I move on to other stuff. Andrew, welcome to the program. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, you, you hear a lot in the news lately about athletes um, skipping athletic events or retiring out of mental health concerns, which I don't want to be uh, dismissive of mental health and that importance, but how long do you think it'll be until abortions are allowed because of mental health uh, concerns in states that only allow abortions because during uh, the health and life of the mother? Oh, look, uh, I, I actually think it, it's already happening in, in some places, and it's going to escalate depending on the language. In fact, uh, pro-life activists have been mindful of this when they've been structuring the laws in several states to uh, preclude uh, mental health as a reason. But some states have included mental health, and that's going to be uh, the excuse. Uh, however, that being said, some states have a 15-week uh, absolute ban except for the uh, physical health of the mother or uh, the child. Uh, now, you should know, by the way, that the left is spreading a rumor that ectopic pregnancies um, are, you, you that would be considered abortion if you uh, got rid of a child on the verge of miscarry or, or a miscarry would be a an abortion. And there's not a state in the nation where that's true. Even Planned Parenthood says this is a myth. Uh, but uh, it's still being advanced. Uh, people don't care what the truth is. They just care about their emotions. And by the way, that that's one issue here with the Dobbs case. And the reaction to it is it's very emotional reaction, which suggests this is something for the democratic processes of the country, not for a court when it's a judicial matter, not an emotional matter. The Supreme Court can't leave well enough alone. They, they've gotten rid of um, Roe v. Wade, and today they got rid of Lemon. Now, uh, the Lemon case, you should really know, has been overruled by the Supreme Court for some time, but not formally. Uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman was in 1971. The court ruled eight to one that Pennsylvania's non-public elementary and secondary education act from 1968 was unconstitutional. The act allowed the superintendent of public schools to reimburse private schools, mostly Catholic, for the salaries of teachers who taught in private elementary schools from public textbooks with public instructional material. And they came up with the Lemon Test. The Lemon Test is three parts. One, the statute must have a secular legislative purpose. 
The principal or primary effect of the statute must be neither to advance nor inhibit religion, and the statute must not result in an excessive government entanglement with religion, factors to include the character and purpose of the institution benefited, the nature of aid, and the resulting relationship. Now, the problem here with this was, and by the way, these were the same justices who gave you Roe v. Wade, uh, the problem with this is the third part, uh, excessive government entanglement. And over time, what that came to mean was that anything that touched religion at all would be unconstitutional. And so essentially, it gave rise to de facto uh, secularism. That is So, for example, uh, if you wanted to give grants to adoption agencies to help facilitate adoptions, you could accept to adoption agencies run by churches. That would be excessive entanglement. Now, what's so interesting is that across the country, you could get very different results. So in one uh, circuit court, you could say, well, this was entanglement of religion. In another, you, you wouldn't. And it always had to go to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court largely over time has taken the position of neutrality and has pushed aside the lemon test. Some circuits have hidden behind it because the Supreme Court has never fully overruled uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman until today. Big case out of the United States Supreme Court, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Let me, I'm just going to read you now the facts. Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion of the court. Joseph Kennedy began working as a football coach at Bremerton High School in 2008 after two decades in the Marines. Like many other football players and coaches, he made it a practice to give thanks through prayer on the playing field at the conclusion of the game. In his prayers, Kennedy sought to express gratitude for what the players had accomplished and the opportunity to be a part of it. Initially, Mr. Kennedy prayed on his own. But over time, players asked whether they could pray. Kennedy responded by saying, it's a free country, you can do what you want. The number of players grew to include most of the team, at least after some games. Sometimes team members invited opposing players to join. Other times, Kennedy prayed alone. Eventually, he began incorporating short motivational speeches with his, with his prayer if others were present. The team at times engaged in pregame and postgame prayer in the locker room. Over seven years, no one complained at the school district. It seemed the district superintendent first learned of them in 2015 after an employee from another school commented positively on the practice to the principal. At that point, the district acted quickly. On September 17th of 2015, the superintendent sent Mr. Kennedy a letter. In it, the superintendent identified two problematic practices in which he had engaged. He provided inspirational talks that included overtly religious references, like constituting prayer with the students midfield. Second, he had led students and coaches in an actual prayer in the locker room in a tradition that predated his involvement with the program. The district explained that it sought to establish clear parameters going forward and instructed Mr. Kennedy to avoid motivational talks with students that included religious expressions and to avoid suggesting or supervising or encouraging prayers. The district explained that any religious activity on his part would be non-demonstrative, that is, not outwardly discernible as religious activity, if students were also engaged in religious conduct in order to avoid the perception of endorsement. 
After receiving the letter, he ended the tradition that predated him of offering locker room prayer. He also ended his practice of incorporating religious references in his post-game talks. He further felt pressure to abandon his practice of saying his own quiet prayers. Driving home after the game, he felt upset that he'd broken his commitment to God by not offering his prayer. By that point, everyone had left the stadium, so he walked onto the 50-yard line. He knelt and said a prayer of thanks in an empty stadium. On October 14th, through counsel, Mr. Kennedy sent a letter to school officials informing them that because of his sincerely held religious beliefs, he felt compared to offer a post-game personal prayer of thanks midfield. He asked the district to allow him to continue this private religious expression alone. Consistent with the policy, he explained that he neither requests, encourages, nor discourages student participation in these prayers. He emphasized he sought only the opportunity to wait until the game is over and the players had left the field to walk to midfield and say a short private personal prayer. He told everyone it would be acceptable to him to pray when the kids were away from him. He clarified that this meant he was willing to say his prayer while the players were walking to the locker room or bus and then catch up with his team. However, he objected to the implication that he couldn't bow his head at all in the vicinity of any students and he would uh, have to flee the scene if students came to the same area. Shortly after the game on October 16th of 2015, the district said that Mr. Kennedy had complied, but instead of accommodating his request, it forbade him from anything relating to prayer on the football field. They ultimately fired Mr. Kennedy because he prayed on the football field alone by himself on the 50-yard line on October 23rd, 2015. The case went to the federal courts of appeals and the courts of appeals said you can't do this literally this man coach kennedy knelt and prayed in an empty football stadium and they said you're not allowed to do that separation of church and state and to their credit today the supreme court said this is nuts I want to read for you part of the opinion now. The absence of evidence of coercion in this record leaves the district's final argument. The district suggests that any, any visible religious conduct by a teacher or coach should be deemed impermissibly coercive on students. In essence, the district asks us to adopt the view that the only acceptable government role model for students are those who issue any visible religious expression. If the argument sounds familiar, it should. Really, it's just another way of repackaging earlier arguments that government may script everything a teacher or coach says in the workplace. The only twist here is the district suggests not only that it may prohibit teachers from engaging in any demonstrative religious activity, but that it must do so in order to conform to the Constitution. Such a rule would be a sure sign that our Establishment Clause jurisprudence has gone off the rails. In the name of protecting religious liberty, the district would have us suppress it. Rather than respect the First Amendment's double protection for religious expression, it would have us preference secular activity. 
Not only could schools fire teachers for praying quietly over their lunch, for wearing a yarmulke to school, or for offering a midday prayer during a break before practice. Under the district's rule, a school would be required to dismiss the teacher. It's a rule that would defy the court's traditional understanding that permitting private speech is not the same thing as coercing others to participate in it. It is a rule, too, that would undermine a long constitutional tradition under which learning how to tolerate diverse expressive activities has always been part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society. We are aware of no historical understanding of the Establishment Clause that begins to make it necessary for government to be hostile to religion. And so the Supreme Court has ruled that if a coach wants to pray on the football field, he's allowed to. Not only that, the court has expressly ended the lemon rule and made it very clear. Now, what's even significant to me and interesting to me is that Justice Sotomayor, who's the most consistently hostile person to religion on the Supreme Court, has largely ruled now that, yes, a school can fire a teacher for any religious expression, including wearing a yarmulke, including wearing religious garb. Now, some of you, some of the left out there, say, well, what about Muslims? What about Muslims? Will you be okay when they yell Allah Akbar? What, what about if they come in wearing Islamic headdress in schools? Actually, yes. Uh, Justice Scalia, when he was alive, wrote an opinion of the court. A, a woman had been fired for wearing Muslim uh, a religious garb to work and said, that's absolutely inexcusable. Someone must be allowed to practice their faith in all areas of society. We'd be totally fine with that. As, as Charlie, my producer, call screener, says, the, the only uh, time to be worried about someone screaming Allah Akbar is when they got a bomb strapped to them. But if they're in a playground, on the field, at a sporting event, in society, and they yell, Allah Akbar, well, God bless them. It's their constitutional right, and the Supreme Court has reaffirmed it today. And same for Christians who want to pray on the football field. The hostility to of Justice Sotomayor to religion is striking in this case, really striking just how hostile to religion is. Uh, what's so interesting here is if you take Sotomayor at her word— if you accept transgenderism and the like as religious, she would say they couldn't do it in school. But you and I both know she would allow that. Now, the majority opinion, I think we're going to have to move towards recognizing all this cultural stuff as religious too. It's going to be interesting to see, other than the fact that Christians will at least be able to compete in the public schools for the battle of ideas in the minds of students. There are a lot of options out there. If you're a self-starter and you want to invest on your own, it can be really confusing. I'm delighted to tell you about SoFi because that's who I use, and now I've got them as an advertiser. If you're a SoFi user, you get all sorts of options, great research. You get the ability to invest in stocks, EFTs, crypto, plan out your retirement. More importantly, you got people you can call on. I mean, for example, I can use SoFi to buy stocks and EFTs and do the deep dive research if I need to and get complimentary financial planners ready to help answer questions. Uh, you can too, whether you're stuck on where to start or need help deciding what to do next. You can even save for retirement with traditional Roth and SEP IRAs. They have so many options. If you're into crypto, they've got 30 available coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, Dogecoin, and so much more. But more importantly, they've got the number one ranked automated investment tool, their robo-advisor. 
It takes the stress out of building and managing a diversified portfolio without having to pay a bunch of experts to do it. I really like SoFi. Y'all, I've tried, you name it, and I probably tried it. And I settled on SoFi and think you will like it as well. Cut through the jargon, make investing easier with SoFi. Visit SoFi.com slash Eric to learn how you can win up to $1,000 in stock when you open an account. That's SOFI.com slash Eric. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC. Member Finris. So I got to play you some of this audio. I I put it off, but I mean, the unhinged audio from some of these people. This is SC Cup on CNN. It's hard to imagine the Republican Party surviving this. Um, Between anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ, book banning, anti-democracy. I mean, add all the regressive garbage to this. Add it all together, and I don't know who's left in the future in future generations. Uh, wow. <laughs> the depth of the GOP, the, the liberals of the media constantly embrace the idea that all these, these things are going to cause the GOP to die. And in fact, the GOP is starting to pick up more and more Hispanic voters, which, you know, means the left is going to turn on them and accuse Hispanic voters of all sorts of assorted terribleness. Uh, Michael Beschloss, the historian. Right. This, this is authoritarian. They're trying to say essentially you in America who don't like the fact that we on the Supreme Court can basically shove down your throat something that a majority of you don't like, this is the new reality and you're going to have to deal with it. You know. Um, so it's authoritarian for the, I mean, let, let's just put in perspective what the Supreme Court did. The Supreme Court of the United States said it's not within our power to do this. If that's authoritarian, I like it. Uh, for the authoritarians to say, we don't have this power, I'm sorry, you got to leave it up to democracy. I, that That's the authoritarianism we should embrace. Deeply unhinged. And then, of course, there's Stacey Abrams. Do you think that the Senate should eliminate the filibuster to codify Roe versus Wade into law? Would you support that? I would support lifting it for Roe v. Wade. I would support lifting it for voting rights. These are constitutional issues. Uh, so she wants to get rid of the filibuster, but also this. Many businesses such as Disney and Netflix have expressed their opposition uh, to the so-called heartbeat abortion ban in Georgia when it was passed in 2019. Do you think those companies should pull their businesses from Georgia uh, when and if this uh, abortion restriction goes into effect? Let's be clear. This abortion restriction, this extreme ban, will take effect in a matter of days. The attorney general and the governor have already gone to the 11th Circuit to ask for the state to be lifted. I would tell every single business and every single woman that they should do what is best for the women who work for them. So the question was, should they pull their business? Stacey Abrams is for the second time calling for businesses to boycott Georgia. The first time was Major League Baseball uh, pulling the All-Star game when they passed the election bill. She told them, and then remember USA Today allowed her to go back in and change her op-ed to be able to deny it when the heat got too much. Here's Stacey Abrams again, tacitly saying, uh, take your business elsewhere, boycott the state of Georgia. My favorite, though, is Tiffany Cross on MSNBC. Today, for the first time in 49 years, American women are waking up with less rights than we had yesterday after the supreme court struck down roe v wade now people across the country have taken to the streets protesting this move the majority of americans did not want the court to overturn roe v wade a majority of americans but four men who will never bear children and one handmaiden decided for an entire country 
that their Christian doctrine is the only way. <laughs> what did their Christian doctrine say? Uh, it's not our power. Deal with this democratically. How hard is this for them to understand? Uh, just because you want the right does not mean it's in the Constitution. The Constitution is not the unicorn fart of your wishes and dreams. The Constitution guides us through what the government can and cannot do. Abortion's not in there. You got to deal with it democratically. These people, what do they have against democracy? They claim they're supporting it with the January 6th stuff. They clearly don't really support it. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here nationwide from Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. But I have a guest who I am just exceedingly delighted to have on the program and get to talk to. Um, uh, she, she may not have actually settled back down after what happened last week. Uh, there are so many people who have devoted their lives to constitutional integrity and life um, and ending Roe v. Wade, which just the, you can't read the Constitution and find it there. It should have never been there. Uh, Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society, Marjorie Dansfelder, um, so many. One of them, though, actually leads the March for Life every year and helps organize it. That would be Gene Mancini, who's joining me by phone. How are you? Gene? There you yeah, are. Yeah, I'm right here. How are you? you? Yes. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. So let me ask you the personal question first uh, before we move into everything re related to the Dobbs case. Um, Security-wise, you're, you're, you're high profile. Are, are you concerned at all about uh, the, the left-wing agitators who are out there? Oh, a little bit. Uh, we're taking we're taking measures. Uh, I won't go into them, obviously, online or, but, or on, on the air, but... Uh, but yeah, so I was in DC on Friday and they started to board up, you know, some of the different buildings and the, the windows and what have you. And, and around then we, we got out of town as quickly as we could. So um, yeah, yeah, it is a little bit of a scary time, but, but that said, I mean, I'm not, I mean, by God's grace, the fear isn't like overwhelming or anything. Right. I've got way more peace about what's happening <clears throat> and such gratitude about what's happening. Well, and, and now let's talk about what's happening. You have spent pretty much your career uh, from Family Research Council and, and uh, even your, your uh, master's degree at, at, at James Madison. And you've got the degree in theology of marriage from uh, John Paul II Institute for Studies. I mean, life and marriage has been your focus in your professional career. And it all came to a head on Friday with the Dobbs case. What does it feel like? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little bit surreal. Uh, I also don't necessarily feel like it's time to spike the football, <laughs> so mm -hmm. to speak, like, oh, victory. I, I feel more that, well, and forgive me if you've read this, because I've been saying it a lot, but it's really my heart right now. I heard about this Winston Churchill quote um, after the Battle of El Amin in World War II, and someone asked him, is this the end? And he said, no, no, it's not the end. And and it's not even the beginning of the end, but perhaps it's the end of the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we are culturally. We're moving into phase two here. And, you know, the goal, yes, it was always to overturn Roe. But the loftier goal has always been to change hearts and minds so that abortion becomes unthinkable in our culture. And certainly the last few days have shown us that we've got our work cut out for us in that regard. Yeah. Uh, 
So, well, and, and you know, yeah, you it, say it, that, and I, I pulled up the Washington Post piece from from May, uh, why the head of the anti-abortion March for Life will keep marching, and the subtitle, even if Roe was overturned, Gene Mancini says the movement still has work to do. It does, and I, I got to tell you, I had two calls today on the program from different people who've never heard of, did not even know about the vast array of pregnancy centers in this country that help women in need who are pregnant. They absolutely had no idea they existed. And I've always been shocked how so much of the media either ignores them or tries to discredit them, including today, Bloomberg running another hit piece on pregnancy centers. But there really are a vast array of resources around the country existing. Oh, yes. So when you consider the height of the number of abortions, which was the late 1980s, the early 1990s, and at that point, there were something like 2,000 abortion clinics. And the converse was true. There were maybe, you know, 500 pregnancy care centers. Sometimes people call them CRCs. Well, the reverse is true today. There are less than 700 abortion clinics around the country. Abortion centers, maybe is a better word because clinic, they're really not offering health care. But uh, there are well over 3,000 pregnancy care centers around the country. And collectively, when you look at the data, they provide over $270 million worth in free resources to men and women facing unexpected pregnancies every single year. The thing is that, as you point out, Eric, they're kind of the untold story in the movement because you know, these folks are primarily volunteers and they might be, you know, doctors and nurses that are volunteering. Um, they're stellar organizations, but they're not getting government funding. Um, and they're really just doing this out of the goodness of their heart. So, um, I, I, like, for example, I was asked to compare a Planned Parenthood to a pregnancy care center earlier today. And it's like, wow, there's no comparison. Planned Parenthood has like a financial interest and they get government funding, whereas these pregnancy care centers, it's really just about the mom and the baby, and they're primarily privately funded. And so, yeah, so many of them. And, and it's true, many people don't know about them because they're not bragging. I mean, they're not sort of on the front lines in the sense of media and things like that, but these are just such good-hearted people serving moms and babies in need. So if you had to project into the future, um, the, the I, I wrote on Friday at the end of the day that uh, really the uh, Roe has been kind of the strong nuclear force of the, the larger conservative movement. It's held together a lot of different people with different ideas who may not always get along or agree, but they've always agreed on Roe and it, it, it's gone. And so you can see people in, in various wings of the conservative movement trying to figure out where to go forward, maybe not all agreeing. Where would you ideally like to see conservatives focus uh, in the post-Roe future to continue to help moms and, and uh, grow the culture of life? Well, I think two things are critically important. So we know that with Friday's decision that abortion is still legal, it's not illegal, and that I think the best way to say it is that the abortion returns to the American people and especially through our elected officials, both at the federal level and at the state level. But there's probably a, a you know, sort of a priority of the states there. And so with the March for Life, five years ago, we began a state march initiative. And so um, two days before Roe was overturned, we were in California for the second annual March for Life on the steps of the Capitol in Sacramento. We were also in Virginia this year. It was our fourth annual, and we had Governor Youngkin marching with us. We were um, a month before that in uh, Connecticut with over 3,000 people marching in, in September. We'll be in Pennsylvania and then October in Ohio. 
Next year, we hope to double that and within the next five years to be in all 50 states. So my point there is that I think it's really important for the conservative and just the pro-life movement to rally behind um, the states and what can happen at the level of the states. And particularly important to watch will be Kansas. Um, on August 2nd, they will have a, a vote, a ballot initiative, and it's called Value Them Both. And uh, it, this has to do with, in, in 2019, the Kansas State Supreme Court ruled that all laws restricting abortion in Kansas were unconstitutional. And so, I mean, even to, like, have any life protective laws in there, this ballot measure needs to pass on August 2nd. So that'll be, I think, a bellwether for, for many of these states. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing that I think the conservative or pro-life movement needs to rally behind is increasing our support. We mentioned pregnancy care centers, but I didn't even hint at uh, maternity homes, which do much more than PRCs. They, they you know, might house a woman and her baby for two years plus. They're in, in my own local vicinity, there are like three of these maternity homes. And I think, you know, we should financially support all of these good initiatives, but also uh, be willing to support some of the state initiatives that are happening. For example, Texas passed a funding stream of $100 million simultaneous to the heartbeat law passing or being enacted in September. Uh, Mississippi has a similar funding stream, and I'm hearing of other states doing this as well. And and I know, you know, the, the role of the states versus the federal government, that's something that people have to figure out what they are comfortable with. But I, I'd like to see the Fed uh, also pass um, some good laws supporting, supporting life in its earliest mm -hmm. stages and families in the earliest stages of life. Now, if you're just tuning in, folks, I'm talking to Jean Mancini. She's the head of the March for Life in Washington. And Ryan Anderson, I thought, on Friday on Twitter made a compelling point. Is it time to consider <laughs> moving the March for Life to the, the anniversary of the Dobbs case? <laughs> Ryan and everyone else have asked. We will see. Stay, stay tuned. It's the hot question. Um, we love to have our students at the March for Life. That's so important to us. It's such a young march. And I do have a little bit of a concern about schools being out in June, um, yeah. but it's definitely something that we're thinking about. So uh, stay tuned. Now, the yeah, okay. next March will be will be in January, though. We will do this January. It will be the 50th March for Life. And wow. thanks to God, we'll be able to celebrate the overturn of Roe. Now, yeah, yeah, and you know, there is trade-off. School's out. It is warmer in June. I, I, I won't lobby. I, I, I get why it's in January. But in that regard, even when I was at CNN and at Fox, I always thought it was remarkable how little national media coverage the March for Life gets. You, you have a, hundreds of thousands of people show up, a lot of them very young, completely defying uh, the characteristics of what the media says exists within the pro-life movement. It, it's been happening and growing every single year. Uh, I, it's just, it's a phenomenal operation that you guys put together with so little national media attention. Yes, thank you for, for mentioning that. So just in case your listeners don't know, the March for Life has become the largest annual human rights demonstration worldwide, um, bar none. And so we are every single year, we're on the anniversary uh, or around the anniversary of Roe. Um, and uh, so, you know, the original founder, Nellie Gray, which, by the way, Friday's decision was her birthday, which oh, I wow. can't even be. I know how like how providential is that? So I took over when Nellie passed away when she was 88. She was running the March for Life on her own. I just don't even know how she did it. But uh but so they originally thought the march would go for a year, two years, three years, because they really thought that those 
Supreme Court decisions, Roe and Doe would be corrected because, of course, there were decisions of judicial activism. They never thought that it would go on this long. And um, but lo and behold, that march became the largest annual human rights demonstration with literally hundreds of thousands um, of participants every year. And, you know, we really want to witness uh, to everyone, to the media that does cover it, as you point out. Uh, But I think that and of course, to lawmakers, but I think that the people that are most impacted by the march are the marchers themselves. I have heard so many like just stories of just tremendous, I want to say conversion, but these folks might even already be pro-life, but they come and then they're, they sense a call to give their life to this work, whether it's, you know, being like a pro-life lawyer or maybe even a sister, you know, a sister of life or father Pavone, if you know him, he he received his call to become a priest at the March for Life. And I mean, so many phenomenal stories. It's like, it's really, even though we're non-sectarian, it's a a tremendous place of movement of the Holy Spirit. And I think just the unity of all people of goodwill coming together in such a peaceful, such a joyful but somber protest is very powerful. It definitely is. Look, I got to let you go there, but I'm so glad you could stop by. And I I, I, I hesitate to say congratulations, but congratulations. Yeah. I know the work really does go <laughs> on, um, but best of luck uh, for the next few years on this. And as we continue to watch this now spread to the state level where it needs to be. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Eric. I'm such a fan and it's really fun to come on your show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Uh, Mutual Admiration Society there. Jean, thank you so much. Uh, She's fantastic, y'all. My gosh, she has poured her life into the March for Life and uh, just the cause of life and to see. It really, it is surreal. This case, 50 years, this thing, 50 years and finally gotten rid of. Um, Patience working in democracy for 50 years, uh, ultimately gets to this. It's remarkable. One of the groups, actually, that has helped with the March for Life uh, and with the pro-life cause is Patriot Mobile. And if you, as a uh, customer of Patriot Mobile, um, your profits that you help the company generate goes to fund the pro-life cause and the Second Amendment cause. They, they've got some big wins this week in the Supreme Court with organizations that have directly benefited from Patriot Mobile. And so it's a great way to compound your dollars in the conservative movement by being uh, a customer of Patriot Mobile. And it's not like you're getting second-class service. You get the same cell towers everybody else uses. So you get great coverage. You don't have to take my word for it. Go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric. Uh, not only can you transfer your service, but you can get a detailed coverage map of their 5G, their data, their voice. You can call them if you want to call them, 972-PATRIOT. They've got 100% U.S.-based customer service. But just go check them out. Uh, You get free activation with my name. So if you call them at 972-PATRIOT, tell them I sent you, you get free activation. You also get unbelievable discounts if you're a veteran, a first responder, a teacher, even an NRA member, so many other options there for discounts. You've got a large family, you need multiple lines. They can take care of that as well. Or just go to patriotmobile.com slash Eric today. It's a Christian conservative cell phone provider. Actually, really are. It's not just a marketing gimmick. Uh, they really are, and they put their money where their mouth is, helping the pro-life movement, the Second Amendment movement, the veterans and first responders. PatriotMobile.com/Eric. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Um, I, I got a well. I don't know. Is is it a shout out or what? Um, so, Philip, his team lost the Stanley Cup. I gotta say, 
this isn't a rubbing salt in Philip's wound sort of thing. That would make me a terrible boss. Um, it would be like talking about Tennessee football on the radio, which I've done in the past, uh, his other team. <laughs> um, I, I never was a hockey person. And then in the last couple of years, I have started watching hockey. My dad uh, told me when I was home with him last week that he's become a hockey fan. Uh, and he just watches UFC fights and considers those the best of clips of the hockey games. <laughs> but I, I got to actually say, so so the, the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup last night. Um against Tampa Bay, in Tampa Bay, uh, the Lightning lost. The, the Avalanche, they were an incredible team. They have played remarkably well this entire year. I mean, they really have. Even I think the folks in Tampa Bay have to credit the Avalanche, just an incredible team. I, I'm I'm ready for football season to start. Had to watch the, the Dodgers beat the Braves last night in, in uh, extra innings, and that was I, – I finally had to throw everybody off the front porch because I was ready for bed and had to get up and do the show today. But I'm, I've am i gotten into this hanging out and watching sports with friends in my 40s. It's not something I wanted to do in my 20s and 30s. I had other stuff I wanted to do, and now I'm like, all right, I'll sit down and smoke a cigar, have a glass of bourbon, and watch sports with friends. And football season can't come soon enough. Uh, I'm ready for college football. Now, I've always liked college football, but I, I kind of wish college football was on Sunday night instead of Saturday um, to hang out with friends and watch that instead. But Sunday in the NFL, I, I can do that. There are so many shows, though, that are out there. You know, uh, when The Sopranos were on HBO, and HBO just began the string of hits. You had The Sopranos, you had Game of Thrones, and and so many others. Uh, you had the Band of Brothers um, short series based on the book and all, and people are like, this is the golden age of television. And now with streaming, I'm just, it's remarkable the number of shows on streaming that actually are good. Now, there have been some cluckers. Like, I decided I would watch the Halo series because I play the video game on the Xbox, and it was a real clunker. Um, I'm sure they're going to renew it for a second season, but it was kind of a, it, it was not good. Um, but the Star Trek Strange New Worlds show, I've actually liked it as an episodic Star Trek show. I'm a Star Trek fan. It's great. Um, and But there are so many other streaming shows across uh, seasons. The the Jack Reacher on Amazon, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, there's some, some gory, brutal violence in it, but it is a fantastic show. Um, and it just, there, there are lots of good shows out there to watch. I feel like I'm watching more TV now than I have in the last 10, 15 years or so. Uh, part of it is too, my kids are older and they're doing their own thing. And so now I've got free time at night to watch TV shows, but I'm ready for football season to start. Now, look, I'm going to go to several Braves games in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm not going to as many as I want, but I'm going to some and, I enjoy going to Braves. I'm just, I don't necessarily like watching baseball on TV. I want to be in the stands, uh, have a beer and a hot dog and watch a, watch a baseball game as opposed to sitting there with my TV. At least with the baseball on, you can actually have conversations with friends because half the time there's nothing going on. But I'm ready for football season, folks. That That's the bottom line here. Hockey's over. I'm ready for football. Bring it on.